You may have guessed by the amount of water used. I've been looking forward to that baptism for a long time. <laughs> it is indeed good to be reminded of God's good promise and, and grace, not only in our children, but for us too. Uh, welcome if you're a guest visitor here this morning. We're glad that you are here. There is a black pad there in your pew. If you could take that and sign that, uh, pass that along, that, that'd be good. There's also uh, prayer cards in the pews. If you have a particular prayer concern, we do have a prayer team that would be glad to pray for your concern. Please fill it out and uh, give it to Mark or myself or one of the deacons, and we will pass that along to our, our prayer team. We are uh, continuing on our study in the Gospel of Mark. We are coming to the end of the story. We are in chapter 14. We looked last week at Jesus' uh, arrest in the garden. Judas comes and betrays him, and they arrest him. And now we find ourselves in Mark 14, verse 53, reading through verse 65. Listen again to God's word to us. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. This too is where the Lord... Thanks be to God. What we have seen over and over again in this gospel is that there has been this opposition to Jesus. They have been trying to discredit Jesus from the very beginning of the gospel. They decided way back in chapter 3 that they needed to kill Jesus. And we have seen in this last week of his life as Jesus has been in the temple that they have come to test him, to trap him. What we have seen over and over again is that the one who comes to test Jesus is himself tested. The one who comes to question Jesus gets questioned himself. In our series in the gospel, we come now to the trial of Jesus before the the Jewish Sanhedrin. Jesus is on trial, but it is the high priests and members of the Sanhedrin who will be tried, whose guilt will be exposed. Now, I want to be clear from the very beginning that 
Our point is not to show how guilty the Sanhedrin was, nor purpose is to show how guilty every generation is in their attempts, in our attempts, to condemn Jesus. Every generation seeks to discredit Jesus, not the least of which is our own generation's attempts to do away with this troublesome Galilean. As the Sanhedrin meets to judge and condemn Jesus, first let us notice how they are judged and condemned. Verse 55 tells us that they were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. They had decided before this trial started what the verdict and what the sentence was. Now they just need to come up with some evidence. They're pretending to do justice, but they're exposed as unjust judges who have already made up their minds. Their trial is a sham to cover up their intention to lynch this man. I think we witnessed this kind of a court case in the hearings this week for Judge Jackson, who has been nominated to the Supreme Court. This hearing, or maybe we should change the name from hearing to, to talkings, because it seems like no one is really listening in any of these. There was no attempt to really listen. There was no, and, and this is how all these hearings have been for the last several, right? The evidence was immaterial. What Judge Jackson said was unimportant. All the senators had reached their verdict before any testimony was given. They were merely hoping that they might hear something that would justify their previous decision to approve or to disapprove. And in fact, this whole trial of Jesus is a sham according even to Jewish law. The, the Jewish Mishnah, the Mishnah was a written down record of the oral traditions that governed Judaism in the first century. According to the Mishnah, there were rules governing cases like this that involved the death penalty. First, you had to give the reasons for acquittal that before you talk about the reasons for a conviction. And in Jesus' trial, there were no reasons given for acquittal. Secondly, a verdict of guilty required a second sitting the following day. You could not convict and condemn one on the same day. It had to happen in two, two days. You had to have a, a night to think about the decisions you had made. And both sittings had to take place in the daytime. And neither sitting could be on the eve of the Sabbath or festival as Jesus' trial was. And witnesses were to be warned against rumor and hearsay. And a charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the accursed cursed God's name itself, which Jesus never does. And there's no evidence ever of the Sanhedrin ever meeting in the high priest's house. There was a Sanhedrin hall where trials took place. And the fact this happens in the high priest's house and none of these requirements were met shows us what a sham this trial was. Nearly every detail of Jesus' trial violates the rules for capital offenses for death penalty cases prescribed in the Mishnah. Not only that, but they bring false testimony against Jesus. Even though the verdict was already decided, even though they were willing to offer and receive false testimony, they, they couldn't convict him because their testimony was so inconsistent. And they finally tried to convict him on the charge that he said that he would destroy the temple, the temple made with human hands and build another temple not made with hands. 
even though they couldn't sustain this charge because they couldn't get their testimony still to agree, this charge reveals perhaps more clearly, reveals certainly more about the Sanhedrin than it does about Jesus. They wanted him put to death because he threatened their human-made project. He threatened the temple. It's not that he threatened the place, this place of worship of the one true God. It was that he threatened the thing they were building with their own hands, by their own effort. And again, this is true of each generation. Jesus threatens our human-made projects, whether it's atheistic communism or a capitalism unimpeded by concerns of morality. Jesus gets in the way and must be neutralized or done away with altogether. This is true also on a personal level. Each one of us in our human-made attempts to construct a life of happiness, security, and control, we find Jesus and his commands threatening. And as a result, we reach our verdict that Jesus can be ignored, and then, and then we go on searching for evidence to support our verdict to protect our own self-made kingdom. But none of this was working in the trial of Jesus, and so the high priest has to step in. Verse 60, says he, verse 60 says he stands up and takes control of the proceedings and asks Jesus if he was going to answer any of these charges brought against him. But Jesus was silent. As was prophesied about him in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Finally, then, the high priest blurts out the question, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? In the Greek, it's actually in the form of a statement. There was no punctuation in the original Greek. Literally, he says, you, emphasized you, you are the Messiah, the son of the blessed one. We insert the question mark. This statement by the high priest is one of the clearest statements about the identity of Jesus in the whole gospel. Other clear statement we'll see at the end of chapter 15 at the cross when the centurion will declare, truly this man was the son of God. Two men responsible for Jesus' death make the clearest statements of who Jesus is. You are the Messiah, the son of the blessed one. And Jesus replies, I am. And then quotes Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus has been keeping his identity as the Messiah a secret, the whole gospel, right? He's told several, the demons, he's told people, don't say it, be quiet, don't tell anyone the truth of who I am. But now, now the messianic secret is out. Jesus' true identity as Son of God can now be openly declared but only because it's inseparably connected with his identity as the crucified one. Well, after this testimony from Jesus, this faithful witness of Jesus, the case is closed, right? Jesus is guilty. The charge? That he is the Messiah, God's son. He is guilty of claiming to be God's son, God's anointed one, the Messiah. And it is this claim that gets him killed. And I think, again, this is true in every generation. 
Jesus is not killed because of his moral teaching. He is not killed because of his prophetic calls for justice. He is not even killed because he was a threat to Roman power or any other political power. He is killed because he claims to be God's son. And if he is God's son, then that demands our complete surrender to him. That demands our obedience. That demands that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But with our own hands, we have built our little empires of dirt. We have built our self-made attempts at happiness, our own temples to a God that is comfortable and that I can manipulate and can control. And Jesus comes and claims to be God himself, a God beyond my control and manipulation. And we cannot tolerate such a dangerous possibility. Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard him. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as worthy of death, just as Jesus had said they would. Back in chapter 12, he had told the parable of the vineyard. When the wicked tenants found out that the master had sent his son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Then we will be in charge. Then no one will be a threat to our control and our freedom. And we're told then that they blindfolded Jesus, they spit on him, they beat him and mocked him by telling him to prophesy who hit him. They mocked him as a false prophet who could not prophesy as they fulfilled his prophecy of what they would do to him. Let me say again, one of the dangers of Biblical interpretation historically has been to read this text and to condemn the Jewish people as terrible people. My intent this morning, my intent this morning is that we would see that this is not a Jewish problem, this is a human problem. Every generation is guilty of putting Jesus on trial and condemning him. Every generation is guilty of putting God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis says. Instead of us coming humbly, repentantly to God and Jesus to receive his rightful judgment of us. Instead, we assume the role of the high priest, of judge, of prosecutor, judging God, judging Jesus, if he is worthy of life. And for the sake of our own power, our own authority, we too condemn Jesus. I hope you can see that. I hope you can see how we too are guilty. And maybe this morning you are sitting here and want to say to me, but pastor, I love Jesus. His word has been life to me. I gladly submit to him. I would never, never condemn him. And for those who might feel this way, I think Mark has something for us. <laughs> he has a sandwich for us, a Markin sandwich. Do you remember Goody teaching us about Mark's fondness for sandwiches, how he will put two stories together? He begins one story and inserts another in the middle of it and then finishes the first story. Well, Mark does this to help us to see these, how these two stories interpret each other. We last saw a Mark and Sandwich when Mark told the story of the fig tree that had no fruit sandwiched around Jesus' judgment of the temple and the money changers and the merchants. And Jesus' cursing of the fig tree that had no fruit helped us to understand why God would bring judgment on the temple. Well, here the sandwich is Peter following at a distance in verse 54. Peter's story is sandwiched around the trial of Jesus. 
Jesus is condemned, and then Mark now returns to Peter's story. One of the clues for us about the purpose of the sandwich is the word witness. Seven times in verses 55 to 63, the Greek word for witness or testimony is used. The trial is filled with false testimony, those who bore false witness. And Jesus is the only one, is the only one in his trial who gives a faithful and true witness. And we are tempted to condemn the Sanhedrin. They were dishonest, false witnesses. But we are not like them, right? We love Jesus. We trust him. We follow him as Peter does in this story. Peter follows, we're told, verse 54, but at a distance. And then the the story continues, verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway further away from Jesus. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. As one commentator says, Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. Right? He has forsaken this costly following of Jesus to be at a safe distance observing. This mark and sandwich of Jesus and Peter creates a sermon on the meaning of bearing witness under persecution. Maybe we do not reject the lordship of Christ. Maybe we love him and his commands. Maybe we long for him to be king. But are we like Peter, following at a safe distance? Is this a picture of our own lukewarm discipleship? Keeping Jesus in, in sight, but not close enough so that we might have to suffer or to bear witness. Is that a picture of our own discipleship? I confess my own temptation to distance myself I guess I would say not from Jesus, but from the church, from other Christians who are embarrassing to me. And it is right, I guess, for us to say, we're not talking about following the church, we're talking about following Jesus. And there are things that the church has done historically in the present that do not bring honor and glory to Jesus. But do I also keep Jesus at a distance because I'm afraid if I am too closely aligned with him that I will suffer with him. Yes, I love him but at a distance. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we read this word this morning 
and we find ourselves indeed being judged, being confronted with our own resistance, whether it's to you and to your lordship, or resistance to following you and the cost that goes along with that. Lord, we pray that we would follow you completely, that we would walk with you in the way that you walk, that we'd be willing indeed to suffer if that's what is required. Lord, uh, we confess our weakness, we confess we need help. Help us to be together, this congregation, a place that encourages us to submit to you, to obey you, to follow hard after you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please rise as we respond.